You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and researcher at MLB.com, joined by MLB.com National Content Editor Matt Myers. Today is Thursday, August 5th. On today's show, we are going to quickly look back at teams that may regret their trade deadline actions or inactions, uh, talk about the giant mess that is the National League MVP race, focus on the Reds, who may still have a chance at sneaking into the playoff run, a look at the St. Louis Cardinals outfield and get into our usual rants and raves and players you may or may not know. Matt, quickly before we start, I did want to focus briefly on Miguel Cabrera, who I think we all wrote off five years ago. He is at 498 career home runs. He hit two on July 29th. He hit another one on August 3rd. This is somehow his 18th different season of double digit home runs. And he's going to get to 500 soon. Here is my rooting interest in this. Uh, before the season, I was asked by a Detroit writer to help them like, hey, when do you think he might get to 500? So I looked at the projections and I said, well, based on a bunch of projections, they think he's going to hit one home run every 30 point something plate appearances. It's actually been one home run about every 31 plate appearances. So that was pretty close. And I went and I looked at the schedule and I said, "Okay, he'll get this many days off. And, you know, Uh, what I came up with was that he would get to 500 at game 130, which would be Detroit at St. Louis on August 25th. But I said, well, listen, (laughs) They're going to give him that day off. The next day's a day off. They start a homestand. They're going to want him to do it at home. So I said August 27th at home against the Blue Jays. Do you think he's going to get two more home runs in the next 22 days? Or could I possibly nail this? This is really like what I want to happen here. (laughs) I mean, based on his career the last couple of years, it wouldn't be that shocking to see him go, uh, you know, take, take a couple of weeks to hit two home runs. You know, this isn't peak Miggy we're talking about, although he's been hitting them a little more, a little with more frequency of late. So I think it's very possible. I'm, I'm rooting for you, Mike. I, 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 I have a rooting interest in this. <laughs> I just think it's cool that, you know, obviously he is not peak Miggy and Albert Pujols is not peak Pujols like by any means, but both of them have shown some life this year in the year 2021. And I just, I think that's cool because uh, the Dodgers are going to the playoffs in one form or another. And the Tigers clearly aren't, but they sort of feel like the team I'll talk about this winter as like next year's breakout team. And he'll still be there. You know, so maybe maybe he will be part of the next good Tigers team. All right, we're going to start. This is our first show since the trade deadline last week, which is a wild trade deadline. And obviously some teams made out really well, some teams not so much. We are going to be uh, gloomy Debbie Downers here, I guess, to start. Which teams a week after the deadline uh, may have regrets? It is almost impossible to do a segment like this and not start with the Colorado Rockies. I'm sorry, Rockies fans. It's true. I don't think any of you are going to disagree with us here. Not trading Story. Trevor Story was one thing. Uh, not trading Daniel Bard was another. You know what the name I keep coming back to? Why do you still have CJ Crone on your team? Like, what wh- what are we doing here? That is number one. Is there any way you can, I don't know, take this rocky situation and spin it into a positive? Because I am struggling here. Uh I really can't, uh, mostly because <laughs> there's so many teams. You know, I'm, the thing is, I'm looking at the teams with deadline regrets of things that wish they wish they could have done, and the Rockies have some of the pieces that they could have. Like it could have been, it could have been a win for both teams, right? So it's, it's that's the fact. We'll we'll get to a couple of those teams in a minute, but yeah, I, 
I know there was there was a lot of chatter on on, on trade deadline day, and you know Bill Schmidt, their interim G- GM, who I'll admit is in a very tough spot being interim GM yes. with this team right now. You know, basically said, you know, at least as it applies to Trevor Story, uh, we 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 think the 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 compensation draft pick we'll get is more valuable than than what we are going to get in a trade, which. It's possible, and as other, some people pointed out, Bill Schmidt is a scouting director by you know by trade, and is one of the has been one of the more uh, respected scouting directors in the game for a long time. So he might, as given in his current role, he might just say like, "Hey, I get the draft. I know the draft. This is how I think we can maximize, knowing that they're going to have one of the top five picks. They'll get a supplemental pick, and that you know that there's the draft pool bonus money that comes with it. Although, of course, this assumes that the draft will be exactly the same under the next collective par- bargaining agreement, which I think is a big assumption and it does i mean there's also something about it that i think is just sort of sad this this assumption that there's no chance teams will re- <laughs> that they have, they have any plans of resigning a player that they drafted and developed they're just it's just assumed that they they will get a draft pick and it's actually funny because they might not it's possible trevor story accepts the qualifying offer and says you know what i had a bad year there's also there's other shortstops out on the market such as Corey seager and carlos correa and javier baez I'd rather just take the qualifying offer, hopefully put up better numbers next year, and then go into the market. I'm still in my 20s without the qualifying offer attached to me. So that would kind of be like the the that that's the the in some ways that's the biggest risk the Rockies are taking with that with that line of thinking. We're sure they're going to offer him the qualifying offer, right? Like we're, we're sure they won't. I don't know, forget to do it or something. Uh, but it's funny what you said is like if you think about some of these other teams, like you know our list we have here, Red Sox. You know, the Mets, they didn't do either team didn't do enough to reinforce their pitching. Rockies had a really good starting pitcher in John Gray, who has said he'd like to stay. And that's fine. If they there's still time for that to work out. OK, if they resign him, that's perfectly fine. Great. Uh, if they do. Right. You look John, at the Red John Gray had one of my favorite quotes afterwards. He said, I just want to wear purple. Is that too much to ask? And I was like, my four year old says that, too. But it's, uh, yeah. it was very it was very endearing. Literally, my five year old son is a Rockies fan because he likes Wearing purple. Quick side note: His birthday is in a month, and he, I asked him what he wanted, and he said a Trevor Story jersey. And I was like, eh, <laughs> "How am I going to get around this?" <laughs> um, the Red Sox and the Mets kind of in the same basket a little bit in that neither team went out and got the starting pitchers they needed. I know, like you know, Rich Hill is fine. Trevor Richards is not that interesting, and we talked a lot about how there just weren't that many starting pitchers. So I'm willing to, you know, give them a little bit of credit there. But uh, do you think if you're the Mets, so much of it is just if we have Degrom, we're good, and if not, we're not. <laughs> I think that's part of it, and also the expectation probably that at some point, you know, we're not going to replace guys like Conforto and Don Smith. At some point, they just have to start hitting, and we just hope that that happens. So I think that's part of it. But again, it's not just. And even it's not just starting pitchers, though. For the Red Sox and the Mets, you need just guys who can get outs, even if that's in the bullpen, right? So it's it could have been Daniel Bard, right? You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be Jonathan Gray. The Rockies, that's kind of what I'm getting at. They had pieces that could have helped a lot of these teams. So the, de- the day of the trade, li- trade deadline, the Mets had Anthony Banda pitching high leverage innings, a guy who's since been DFA. Like They could have used another reliever, too. Um, another team, the Reds, who we'll speak more about later, like, I could have seen them as a fit for Trevor Story, and they could have also used bullpen help. Like, and but again, that also presupposes that the Rockies would have been willing to make a deal. So I can't be too hard on the Reds in that case in regards to Story. Of course, 
you know, I'm not really buying Kyle Farmer. So that was like a really, that, that was like a really prime uh, uh, Trevor Story uh, destination in, in my mind. The Rockies keep saying, well, we have this talented starting rotation and they do if they resign Gray. I like Herman Marquez a lot, right? Uh, Kyle Freeland is obviously a guy who's had success there. I just can't see the offense supporting them, especially in that division within the next five years, by which time all those starters will be gone. I just, I don't understand the plan there at all. The other team on your list, oh, the Cardinals. And we'll get to the Cardinals in a positive way in a second, because I do want to talk about their young outfield. Trading for Jay Happ and John Lester is not exactly what I think people had in mind. They traded John Gant. Well, I, I don't even like John Gant that much. Like his ERA is a mirage because he has like the second highest walk rate in baseball. And you trade it for Happ and Lester who aren't, I don't know, good. Like they're late 30. They're not even innings eaters anymore. I think that's the problem, right? They are below average innings eaters. So it's sort of like, did you do something or anything or nothing? Are you trying to get back in the race? I guess the idea is they're trying to protect some of their young pitching, which I suppose. But I, I think outside of Colorado, that trade deadline was the most confounding for me out of any team. Agree, especially since, the, I mean, the Cardinals, to their credit, have generally been a team that tries to tries to win. You know, they, oh, they see an opportunity. And again, we'll get to this a little more in a second. The NL wild card might actually be a little more wide open than uh, it seems and, and this never would have happened but another fun trevor story destination would have been st louis paul de jong has been been terrible this year um and it would have been really funny if they went out and acquired trevor story to play along nolan arenado for that reason alone that would trade would never happen uh but it is it is fun to think about but yeah so for the, the cardinals it's just weird they're normally like you're better off just doing nothing this just felt like you know lipstick on a pig so to speak um and you're better off just doing nothing than if, if that's if that's what you're going to do. Um, yeah, it's, it's not exactly uh, what you want, I don't think. We will take a quick break and we will come back and we will talk about the wild NL MVP race. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. We are back on the Ballpark Dimensions podcast, and I know we're still two months away from the end of the season, but man, is the NL MVP becoming kind of an interesting thing. I think we had done like an, a roundtable maybe six or eight weeks or so ago that I was a part of, and the three names at the top of the list at that time were clear. Uh, Ronald Acuna, who's having a great season, Fernando Tatis, who's also having a great season, and Jacob deGrom, who looked like he was going to have the greatest pitching season ever. And then what happened? Uh, Acuna blew out his knee and he's out for the year. deGrom hasn't pitched in a month and may or may not be back. And Tatis is on the injured list again with the same shoulder injury that it's it's possible he may not come back from. He may have to go have shoulder surgery and be out for the year. And then you start thinking to yourself, huh, there's no clear front runner here. Who who's going to win this thing? It's it's weird to see all three of these supposed front runners knocked out. And then you start looking up and down the list of wins above replacement, which I wrote about this. And what I said was you can't just 
pick the war leader and say that's your award winner. But also, if you're not pretty high up on this list, you're probably not in the conversation. And some of the other guys in this list have been traded, like Starling Marte got traded to the American League, so he's out. Trey Turner got traded to the Dodgers, hasn't appeared for them yet. There has never once been an MVP winner who's been traded in season. That doesn't mean he can't be. Let's say he comes back and he's great and the Dodgers roar back into first place. Will he get some support? Maybe, but it's it's hard to, to see that happening. And then you start looking, it's like, okay, well, Max Muncy's a good candidate. Um, Brian Reynolds has been great, but nobody's paying attention to the Pirates. Is it Harper? Maybe. I've heard about Bryce Harper, who's been great. Is it, I don't know, Chris Taylor? Jake Cronenworth? Uh, Joey Votto? Juan Soto's been great. Nobody's paying attention to the Nationals now. Who, Matt, is going to win this thing? I, I mean, if if I had to, if I mean, right now, the, if you were putting odds on it, like the favorite, it probably is, is you know, as like is, uh, well, I don't even know how to do odds in my head, but like, as like, you know, I guess ten to one, like a ten percent, a ten percent chance of 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 winning it, and if like the field is obviously the favorite, but if I had to put it on an individual, I would say Bryce Harper is the favorite because I think that there's a clear path to the Phillies winning the NL East, and if they do that, he will emerge as like the best player on a uh division winning team with a good narrative around it. I mean he's having a really good year. The only sort of thing that's he doesn't have he has doesn't have a lot of home runs and he has very few RBIs, which you also wrote about earlier this year because he like basically hit to no one on base. But he's hitting 306, 417, 557. He's been on a tear of late. And so I just think that based on the way those things line up and how these MVP awards usually go it's set up very well for him to win or Freddie Freeman if the Braves come back and win the, the NL East. With DeGrom Hurt, the Mets don't have an obvious obvious candidate, so they're kind of out, of out of this conversation. The Reds have a candidate in Nick Castellanos, but he's hurt. So if the Reds made the, make the run, he, who knows how much he's going to be a part of that. And Joey Votto probably started too slow for him to become a, a part of this conversation. So I think when you when you start to pick away at it, yeah, Muncy's numbers are similar to Harper's in a lot of ways, and he's you know. But I just can't see Max Muncy. Just again, this is like just based on the history of how MVPs are awarded um, on a team with so many. Tr- same, with, and this goes to, for Chris Taylor too, who's also having a remarkable season. Uh, a player on a team with Mookie Betts and Cody Bellinger and Corey Seager and Justin Turner. I can't see Max Muncy or Chris Taylor winning National League MVP. I could be wrong. I just don't see it. Castellanos is supposed to come back, I think, in the next two or three days. But you also wonder how much a, a micro fracture in his wrist is going to hurt a guy who is a power hitter because he's obviously not a very good defender. I did write about Harper. I looked this up the other day and I don't have the numbers right in front of me. But if you look at everybody who has hit in the two through nine spots in the lineup, so basically just cutting out leadoff hitters here, he has had, I think, the fewest percentage of his plate appearances coming with runners in scoring position. <laughs> so it's like, why are all his home runs solo home runs? Look at his Phillies teammates. The whole thing is kind of fascinating to unpack here because I think part of it, and this is something that people don't think about that much, is the process for how the um, award voters is selected is kind of weird. So these awards are voted on by the Baseball Writers Association of America, which Matt and I are both part of. And it's different for awards than it is for the Hall of Fame. The way it works for the Hall of Fame is if you have 10 years in, you get a vote. That's it. It's yes or no. 10 years, yes, not 10 years, no. But if you are voting for the awards, it's a little weird. Each of the 15 markets in each league, two writers are picked, right? So for example, uh, Matt and I are in the New York uh, chapter, which is massive, and neither one of us have ever been picked 
or anything. And some of the smaller markets, guys get to vote there every single year. And so you sort of get into a little bit. Sometimes for multiple awards. Yeah, exactly. So you sort of get into a little bit of, uh, you know, which voters did you pick? Did you end up with maybe more traditional voters who don't think an MVP can come from a player who's not on a winning team? Or will you get someone more like me who doesn't care about that at all? Like that's obviously an unknown right now, but it's kind of interesting to think like that could potentially swing it one way or the other. The other thing is, I do think, you know, people like good stories. And obviously there's two more months to go. You know, you mentioned that the Phillies are only a game or two out in the East and they're actually playing the Mets this weekend, which should be a pretty fun one. And this Phillies team has been kind of a disaster in a lot of ways. I wrote them off like two months ago because the bullpen has just been atrocious. And if there's a main story around the team now, it's like they keep having COVID issues because they can't get anybody vaccinated. And if you get through all of that, and the fact that Gregorius hasn't been good and center field has been a mess and Alec Bohm hasn't been very good, and you still get to first place, I feel like you got to give a ton of credit to Harper and Zach Wheeler, who's probably going to win the Cy Young Award too. I, I think that's a path. I disagree with you that he's the favorite, right? I think the path is opening up here. The reason I disagree with you is because I think of... And we're assuming that Tatis will be out because if he plays, he'll win it, right? I think more people will be into what Max Muncy has done than you'd think because even though the Dodgers have been very good, the lineup has been very up and down this year. You know, like Bellinger's been horrible and Seager's been hurt. And I think the fact that he's been like a consistent driving force if they, you know, get to the playoffs will will help him. Um, I know a lot of people want it to be Buster Posey because the Giants have been great and he's been great. He has really barely played. He's only got 276 plate appearances right now. Uh, by comparison, Jake Cronenworth has 454 plate appearances. So it's not going to be him. You're right. You could go with the multi-positional guys like Taylor or Cronenworth. If I was voting right now, I'd probably go Muncie with the door open for Trey Turner and also Bryce Harper. Just the fact that we're talking about him, I think is cool because he it's weird to think he sort of gets forgotten, um, but it, it does feel that way a little bit to me. Uh, yeah, I, here's what I'll say. I think there's a very good chance. Normally, a MVP is like star player on a playoff team, and if they didn't make the playoffs, it's a player having a historically great, like some or not historically great, but some like you know real baseball card numbers, whether it's forty or fifty homers, thirty thirty, that kind of thing. If the if the Mets manage to hang on in the NL East, and it's Padres and Giant Dodgers who win uh, the uh, the wild cards. We're going to end up with an NL MVP that sort of like doesn't really check any traditional boxes. It's going to be one of those that like you'll probably look back on in five years and be like, "Huh? Like how, how did that happen?" And now, of course, if, if Tatis comes back and gets the thirty thirty, which if he comes back, he will get the thirty thirty. He's winning it. But I don't know what the fewest games played is for an MVP. And at this point, he's at eighty eight games played. So even if he comes back. In you know a couple weeks, he'll top out at what maybe like one twenty. So, uh, well, it, it, I I sort of know the answer to this. Obviously, you got to stick to full seasons, not last year, not yeah. you know strike shortened seasons and all that. I don't know about games, but the fewest plate appearances in a season. Only one MVP has ever had less than five hundred plate appearances in a full season, and that was Willie Stargell in nineteen seventy nine, who a had four eighty, so he came pretty close, and b didn't even win it outright. Because he tied with Keith Hernandez that year, and and see, if I'm if not, if I recall correctly, like he, Hernandez probably should have won it out, right? Oh like yeah, it was, it was a very much like a narrative of like you know all oh, the old the old guy on a on a playoff team. Anyway, Willie, Willie was 39 that year. <laughs> um, before I don't want to sidetrack us totally, but I was just thinking about this this morning. Six major awards, right? Both leagues, you got rookie. 
MVP in Cy. Shohei Otani is winning the American League MVP. That is like guaranteed. Sorry, Vlad Guerrero Jr. Uh, I think all five of the other ones are kind of wide open. Like I'm not going to go through each one of them right now, but it just feels to me at this point in the season, we usually have a little more certainty. And because of injuries and you know a lot of good performers in a lot of ways, I don't think I could say, oh, it's definitely going to be, I don't know, Akil Badu or Adalas Garcia, right? Like there are guys like that. And I think that's going to be a lot of fun when we get down to the end of the season to actually look at this and say, oh yeah, um, I don't know. It's going to be a total toss up. So you just said something interesting. You said if it's the Dodgers and the Giants or the Dodgers and the Padres in the wild card, what about the Reds? Are the are the Reds still in this? Okay, right now the Reds are four games out of the wild card behind the Padres, and maybe everybody else knew this fact. I didn't even really like think through it until I saw it this morning. The Reds have a better record than the Mets. It does not feel that way at all, but they do. Um, they are seven and a half games out behind the Brewers in the Central. I don't think that's happening. Four games out behind. And only three in the lost calm. And as we all know, that's all that really matters. Yes, exactly right. And if you were to look at, let's say, the first two months of the season. So I went and looked back, you know, through May 29th. Padres had the best record in baseball. 15 games over 500. The Reds were 22 and 28. Since May 30th, the Reds have the fourth best record in baseball. And the Padres have been under 500 by a game for two months. The Padres have not looked like the Padres in quite some time. And when you look at the remaining strength of the schedule, so Fangraphs does this for us, the Reds have the easiest remaining strength of schedule in baseball by kind of a lot. And the Padres have the fourth hardest remaining schedule by kind of a lot. Uh, One of the ways I wanted to show that was I looked at two teams who completely blew themselves up at the trade deadline, the Cubs and the Nationals. And the Cubs and the Nationals are, let's say, somewhat weaker than they were a couple weeks ago. The Padres do not get to play either of those teams for the rest of the season. The Reds still have 10 more games against those teams. You've been on the Reds bandwagon since day one. Are you actually buying they're going to top the Padres? I, I think it's a real race. I don't think I don't think enough people are paying attention to the fact that it's a real race. You hinted at the strength of schedule. And the, the flip side of that is the Padres have a tough overall schedule. But really, the next two weeks could really decide the Padres season because the Padres schedule for the next two weeks is actually really easy. And so they really have got to take, take care of business the next, the next two and a half weeks and put some distance between them and the Reds. Otherwise I think they're in serious trouble this weekend. They've got three against the Diamondbacks, then three against the the Marlins. Those six games are all at home. Then they go on the road for four against the Diamondbacks and then three against the Rockies. So basically they have the easiest part of their remaining schedule, like basically locked in in the next two weeks. And if they can, you know, go, let's say, realistically, nine and four and open up, you know, a couple more games lead on the Reds. They may be able to put enough distance, especially if Tatis comes back, that, you know, it's 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 moot. But if they're seven, if they play 500 ball over that stretch and Tatis is out a little longer than expected, which seems extremely doesn't seem crazy at this point. Um, I think we have a real race. I mean, if you look at the the fan playoff odds right now, they have the Reds at let's see for the wild card. They have them at seventeen percent to win the wild card. It's basically a one in five chance. Like that's 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 real as far as I'm concerned. You know it isn't. And somebody else on the um, as we're talking about the Padres, there are two guys I wanted to focus on. One of them is we're probably not talking about Manny Machado enough. Like he got off to a really rough start. You know, for the first two and a half months of the season, he just wasn't very good. Uh, since you know June fifteenth, he's tied with Harper for being the best hitter in the National League behind only Shohei Otani. 
So that slow start hurt them, but he's been fantastic. On the other hand, I didn't really love the Adam Frazier trade for really either team involved. He is so far in seven games for the Padres, hitting 179, 233, 214. And they're another team that didn't really go out and get a pitcher. Um, you know, you look at who's starting for them because it just it hasn't worked out. You know, Musgrove, I still like very much. Darvish and Snell are back and healthy, but they're just they're missing something. I don't even think I realized that they got Jake Marisnik until he started in right field yesterday. And the other thing I'll say, this is this is not just about the Reds. Like I think that based on based on you know what we're talking about with the, the Padres schedule, I don't think you can count out the NL East teams either from making it a race for the wild card as well. Because after that, you know, easy stretch I just talked about, the the Phillies host the Padres host the Phillies for three games. And then in late in the season, they have four games left with the Braves. So it's also possible that the NL East teams that are vying for the division title could also end up in the wild card race. There was, you know, for a while it seemed like, oh, the NL playoff races are all kind of they're all kind of boring. You know, the the Mets were up for five or up like five or six games for a while, and the the wild card looked kind of set. And now it's kind of like, eh, we might have some races. You know, maybe it's because of attrition because the Padres and the the, the Mets are kind of falling apart. But some races are better than no races. I would like to once again lodge a personal complaint with the San Diego Padres. I will be in San Diego for a week next week, and they are spending the entire time in Arizona and Colorado. And this is deeply troubling to me personally. Matt, I'm going to put you on the spot. Who is going to be in the wild card game? The Reds at the Giants. Wow. No. Let's get spicy. Not, no, not buying it. All right, here is, here's our third item. Um, the Cardinals, who... You know, they're 53 and 53, which I think is a disappointing outcome for a lot of people because when they traded for Nolan Arenado this winter, they, quote unquote, giant air quotes here, even though you can't see them, won the offseason. And they were a popular pick in a muddled National League Central. I had picked them third. Part of the reason I did that is because I really did not like their offense very much. Yes, Arenado was helpful, um, but they had planned to go into the offseason with an outfield of three somewhat unproven young players, Dylan Carlson, Tyler O'Neill, and Harrison Bader. And there were things to like about each of the three of them. But when I looked at it, I said, there's no way all three of these guys are going to be healthy and productive at the same time for the whole season. Like there, you cannot have Bader who again, I like as your most accomplished outfielder, you got to go get some kind of veteran and they didn't. And of course those guys were inconsistent or injured. And so what had happened was through July 8th, which is not a random day. I'll explain why I picked that day in a second. St. Louis's outfield had a 699 OPS, the seventh worst in baseball. Who could have seen that coming? The next day, July 9th, they finally got all three of those guys, Bader, Carlson, and O'Neill back together and in the lineup. And since then, they have started the three of them every single game for the Cardinals. Since July 9th, almost a month ago, St. Louis outfield has an 856 OPS, tied for the fourth best in baseball. That is huge, not for this year, because they're not going anywhere, not with Jay Happ and John Lester, but it's huge for the future, because if you look at what their outfield has done, those three guys have had 958 plate appearances of an OPS plus of 117, so 17% above average, and everybody else, Edmund and Newt Barr and Lane Thomas and Jose Rondon and Justin Williams and Austin Dean, 750 plate appearances, of a 70 OPS plus 30% below average. There are a lot of reasons to think that they 
maybe looked at this season incorrectly. They did not have enough depth, uh, veteran depth, reliable depth in the outfield. And I think it's really, it's hurt them. It, it's not the only reason they're not going to the playoffs. The pitching has been a problem. Edmund has not been very good. As you said, Paul DeYoung has not been very good. But if this is real, and I think there's reason to think it is for these three guys, next year, this Cardinals outfield, it could be really good. Like I, I am kind of buying into the fact that Harrison Bader has cut his strikeout rate from absurd to just kind of high, you know, because he said specifically, I'm trying to work on hitting right-handed breaking balls. You know, Carlson has been okay, but he's got a, a sky-high uh, ceiling. And Tyler O'Neill is slugging 509. I know, by the way, they're all very good defensive outfielders. This is going to give me a lot more confidence in the Cardinals next year. Not for this year. They were never going to be good this year. But I'm sort of already in on the outfield of the 2022 Cardinals. I, I've become a big become a big Bader fan. He's someone who has kind of surpri- has some surprising pop. I feel a little bit bad for Dylan Carl- Carlson. I feel like the the fan base put a lot of hope in him. They were sort of like, oh, this guy's going to be a star from day one. And he's he, as you said, there's a lot. There's still ceiling left. He's still young, but there there's been some growing pains. I agree with you about this outfield. I think it's really interesting. It's very promising. They really need to figure out how. I mean, their their pitching development the last few years just has not really panned out. They're, I mean, I don't. I mean, obviously Jack Flaherty's been hurt, but Adam Wainwright's been like, it's amazing that he's still like their workhorse. He's um, been good. He's, he's been, been legitimately very, good. He's, he's been very good this year. It's been <laughs> been been uh, been fun to watch. But they they need a full season of Flaherty. They need to figure out some other some other pitching. But the the outfield plus Arenado and Goldschmidt, they have the makings of a, of a strong lineup. Do you remember what I tweeted? I'm like 98% sure I talked about this in like January or something on the show. We were looking at the um, the potential Mets outfield and talking about how they were very left-handed and not great defensively. And so I said, you know who would be great for the Mets would be Harrison Bader, right? He's right-handed. He's a fantastic defensive outfielder. And so I tweeted that. And basically the response I got from like 600 Cardinals fans was, I will drive him to the airport. I will take him to St. Louis. I will buy his ticket to New York. I cannot wait to be rid of this guy. And I was like, oh, it's kind of unfair. I mean, I get it, you know, depending on how you approach baseball, strikes out a lot, low batting average, all this. Like, I I understand that, but he's a really good outfielder and there's some things to like about his bat. And you look at him now, he's been really good. I don't actually buy that he is a 134 OPS hitter, uh, but he doesn't need to be. He is one of the... Like, I'm trying to think of this. If I was ranking and assume full health for everybody, right? The best defensive center fielders in baseball, number one and two for me, are easy. Buxton and Kiermaier, whichever order you want. And then I think about who number three would be. And there's a couple different names that come to mind. Bader is on that. He might be that guy. If not, he's at least in like that three to five range. He's really, really good. And he's still relatively young. He's just 27 years old this year. And I kind of hope that all three of these guys go into next season um, as as the starting trio. And I hope Cardinals fans like Harrison Bader a little bit more. I really do. We will take a quick break and we will be back on the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Okay. 
We are back on the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Each week, Matt and I like to focus on a guy you should know a little more about. My guy is a pretty fun one. I'm excited to talk about San Francisco first baseman slash outfielder Lamont Wayne Jr., 27 years old. He was a ninth round pick of the Twins in 2015. We're going to get back to you, Twins. We're not we're not done with you yet. He had 113 relatively unimpressive plate appearances for the Twins over the last two years. He is one of my favorite fun facts. He was hit by a pitch on the very first pitch he saw in the big leagues, which can happen that often. Um, and then in February of this year, he was traded to San Francisco for Sean Anderson because he was on the fringes of the 40-man roster, and the Twins chose to keep Jake Cave over him. Again, we'll get back to that. With San Francisco, 13 home runs. He has a 908 OPS, a 142 OPS+. plus. He started at all three outfield spots and at first base, and if there is anything to me that kind of looks at the reinvigoration of the recent vintage San Francisco Giants, it's finding guys like this and making them better. We've been over this a trillion times. Mike Yastrzemski, all these other guys. How many times have we heard this from a recent Giant? This is a quote from him. He said uh, he wasn't trying to become a power hitter. Here's the quote. I'm just trying to have a good approach and swing at good pitches to hit. That is literally your 2020 slash 21 San Francisco Giants in a nutshell, and he had one of my favorite moments of the season on July 31st. He comes up in San Francisco, game's tied, hits a home run into McCovey Cove, right? Into the water, breaks the tie, and there's this amazing video. His mom, who wasn't sitting in the right field concourse, but had decided to stretch her legs and walk around the park on a beautiful San Francisco afternoon, happened to be standing there right at the time, and someone has video of his home run going over her head and splashing into the water and her understandably losing her mind over it, which I thought was deeply charming. Um, this is kind of the way the Giants have gotten to their success is finding guys like this who are maybe underappreciated by other teams. Speaking about those other teams, what's going on with the twins? Lamont Wade was a twin. Akil Badu was a twin. Nick Anderson was a twin. Huascar Anoa, who I like a lot, was a twin. Ryan Presley was a twin. I don't know if you watched the Yankee game the other night. Uh, they had a young major league debut from Luis Heel, who was throwing 93 mile an hour changeups. Well, they got him from the Twins when they traded Jake Cave to the Twins. And again, the Twins chose Jake Cave over Lamont Wave. We've praised the Twins a lot over the last couple of years. I feel like there's starting to be some cracks in the foundation here. That's a, that is a lot of talent they let walk out the door for a not great return. Yeah, it's been a it's been a rough go for the Twins on kind of the fringes fringes of their roster the last couple of years because a lot of these guys were on the fringes of the twin, Twins roster and have become impact players elsewhere, as you noted, without really the Twins getting uh, much in return. For my guy this week, I want to take a trip to the OBP leaderboard in the National League. Uh, I don't know if you've looked at it recently, but it's an interesting list of names at the top. We've got Juan Soto. Number one in the National League on-base percentage at 422. Checks out. Bryce Harper, number two, 417. Checks out. Number three, Max Muncy, who we spoke about earlier, 407. Checks out. 403. Number four, Jonathan India of the Reds. Fastball right down the middle of the plate as opposed to a well-located fastball as a home run. India launches to left field. Clear the yard. Whoops. <laughs> Did I just say that? And that's what it is. It's use all the talents. 
For those who are unfamiliar with India, he is the Reds' second baseman this year, and he is trying to become the third rookie in MLB history to lead his league in on-base percentage. The only other two before him who did this were Shoeless Joe Jackson um, in 1911, appropriate to be talking about him this week with the Field of Dreams coming, game coming up a week from today, and Cuckoo Christensen of yes. the 1926 Reds, who had a 426 OBP to lead the National League. Cuckoo Christensen, in case you're wondering, played one more year with the Reds, and his OBP dropped to 330, and his OPS Plus down to 68, and he never played in the National League or American League again. He moved to the Milwaukee Brewers, then of the American Association, where he played out the rest of his career. So he only played in the, major, in the majors for two, for two seasons. Um, now... Back to Jonathan India. And I realize he's been getting a lot more attention the last couple of weeks, so maybe he's not exactly under the radar. But I promise you, I had him lined up to talk about him in this space about a month ago, mostly because of his, of his amazing stirrups. And he wears his like pants above his knees, and he's got this long hair. He looks like a baseball Jack Sparrow. That was actually the main reason I was going to talk about him a few weeks ago. Um, but his, And then he was just playing kind of well. And now he's like emerging as maybe... I don't know if an NL Rookie of the Year favorite, but a very strong contender. Um, he was actually the fifth overall pick of the Reds in 2018, uh, sandwiched between Nick Madrigal, who went number four to the White Sox and was traded to the Cubs last week, and um, Jared Kelnick, who went number six to the Mets and obviously has been since been traded to the Mariners. And I remember the time, you know, we talk a lot about how baseball teams don't draft for need, and for the most part, they don't. But at the time, it was kind of a head scratcher because Jonathan India in college at Florida was a third baseman. And at the time, the the Reds had Eugenio Suarez, who was like a young star third baseman. And the previous year with the number two overall pick, I mean, it was two years before, with the number two overall pick, they drafted Nick Senzel as a third baseman. So it was kind of like, are we, and you know, when you draft college third baseman, it's kind of like you expect this player to be coming pretty quickly. And it's like, what are we doing just hoarding third baseman? Uh, of course, they've tried to move Senzel around the diamond. That has not really worked out. India is playing second base and has been a revelation for the Reds. You know, I don't know, really think they expected this. And if you look at his stat cast numbers, it, it checks out as like, okay, this guy's, you know, there's, there's, there's something real here. He's the, in the 78th percentile and expected weight on base, 88th percentile and walk percentage, 86th percentile and sprint speed, um, which is interesting. Uh, and 89th percentile in chase rate. So at the very least, while I'm not sure about the power long-term, uh, the plate discipline is very real and the speeds there playing it up the middle position, really interesting player. Matt, I have to ask you, when you ordered your custom-made Reds jersey, did you go with uh, white, gray, maybe the alternate red? What did we go with here? Because you, <laughs> you are the Cincinnati hype man right now. I've been I've been spending a lot of time on Reds Twitter recently. It's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a wild place. <laughs> you know, uh, now I hope that they get into the postseason because they the one-game wild card, let's say the Dodgers won the division and the Giants host that. The Giants, like half their pitching staff is made up of former Reds. So that would be kind of fun to see. All right, we're going to finish off. Matt and I each have a purpose pitch, which is a rant and a rave. It was reported yesterday that the Dodgers would be signing Cole Hamels to a deal for the rest of the season. And I kind of had the same take as everybody, which is like, wow, Cole Hamels on the same team with Clayton Kershaw and David Price and Max Scherzer and Albert Pujols. Apparently, they have not yet conceded that 2012 World Series to the Giants. <laughs> they're kind of they're still fighting for it. And, you know, I was, uh, I don't want to say disappointed, but maybe surprised at the reaction to that, where I saw a lot of people saying, well, they're just, look at all these guys, they're just trying to, to buy a ring. And so I actually have two rants here. The first one is, 
it's 2021. How good do we think Cole Hamels is right now? <laughs> He's almost 38 years old. He has not actually pitched a meaningfully good baseball game in two years. David Price is like a swingman. Albert Pujols has been surprisingly decent, but he is still incredibly past his prime. Kershaw is hurt right now. May or may not even be coming back. That's sort of why they went out and got Cole Hamels. So I don't want to hear, oh, look at them loading up on stars. I understand Hamels is very accomplished and has done a lot in his career. That's not who he is right now. The second part of the rant was, so they're trying to buy a World Series. And? (laughs) Cool? I understand. (laughs) I understand the Dodgers have... Uh, significant financial resources that even though every team owner is wealthy, the Dodgers TV situation makes them in a very good spot. Get it. I totally understand that. Um, I don't know. Isn't it good that your team is trying to acquire players to win? That It feels like a good thing to me. I also heard from someone who complained that they're not doing it. They they like it better when their teams win um, with homegrown talent. And I guess I understand how that could be more fun. Like, let's say you're you're a Cubs fan and you like seeing Chris Bryant get drafted and come up and help turn the team from lovable losers to winners. I I get that. Hey, who was the closer on that Cubs team? Where did he come from? I I can't remember. Was he drafted by the Cubs? What team has ever won with totally homegrown talent since like 1962? It doesn't work that way. Good on the Dodgers for trying to improve. And also, we just made fun of the Cardinals for getting Jay Happ and John Lester. I'm not convinced Cole Hamels is actually any different than that. <laughs> what are we talking about? <laughs> here, here, here. Yeah, yeah. Cole, Cole Hamels is really what would put this put this over the top, guys. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um my 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 rant for the week is about the a lot of the the breathless uh, commentary on the trade deadline. How this was the busiest trade deadline ever, and yes, it is true that there were more trades made this July than in any previous July since the trade deadline moved to July thirty first in uh, nineteen. I think it was nineteen eighty six. However, there's a good reason for that. They changed the draft rules. They're, I mean, they, sorry, they, tra- they changed the trade deadline rules. <laughs> there used to be a second trade deadline. Up until 2019, there was a second trade deadline where you could trade players who had cleared waivers. And you, you would also see a flurry of trades, especially with relievers and high-priced, high-priced veterans leading up to the August 31st waiver trade, de- trade deadline. If you will recall, in 2017, that was how Justin Verlander moved to the Astros. It was not at the July 31st trade deadline. It was at the August 31st trade deadline. So it's kind of crazy to me. There's all this conversation about like, yes, it's true. There's more. But there's a very, very good reason for that. And it seems like that some of that nuance is being lost. In fact, in 2019, I went and looked to see, because that was the first year of the new, the new trade deadline rules, where it was the one true de- trade deadline. And hat tip to Ben Clemens at Fangraphs. Um, he did this research back in 2019 because while the 2000 July 2019 was not especially busy, that July 31st itself, the first year with the new trade deadline, was the busiest July 31st on de- on on record in terms of activity on that specific day. So it seems like you know GMs and execs maybe needed a little time to adjust to this new deadline and and, and figure out oh I you know maybe need to start making trades sooner in July and obviously last year we don't we don't count last year but let's recall that there's a big reason why there was a lot more trades this year and why there will be a lot more trades in future years it's because the rules have changed it was still fun though can we it say was it fun. was fun and exciting it was yes. fun Okay. What what that reminds me of a little bit, because your your point about comparing like a very different rules environment is well taken. It always makes me laugh when people are like, well, you know, 
Derek Jeter has the, I can't remember if he's got the most postseason hits or, or near it. He's got the most postseason hits in baseball history. And that means he's like the best postseason performer. And it's like, okay, well, how many rounds of playoffs did, you know, Ernie Banks get to go through? A bad example because the Cubs were always terrible. Even Mickey Mantle, who like went to the playoffs most every year. Mickey Mantle played in 65 postseason games. Derek Jeter played in 158 postseason <laughs> games. He basically had an entire other season of postseason baseball. And did he perform well there? Yes, he did. Um, the funny thing, though, is Derek Jeter in the postseason had an 838 OPS, which is very good. Derek Jeter in the regular season had an 817 OPS plus. He's basically the same guy against tougher competition. Fine. Um, but he got those opportunities to pile up hits that Mickey Mantle and Ted Williams and Babe Ruth and all these guys did. So I guess if your point is, let's make sure to you know compare like to like, uh, this may be a little different. That said, it was a super fun trade deadline. And uh, one of the more fun days I think I've had in baseball in a while, just watching all the trades by then. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you podcast. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thank you for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions Podcast. We will see you next week.